Hello and welcome to Weekly MTG. We have a fantastic show for you today because we are going to be talking about this weekend's Kamigawa Neon Dynasty Championship taking place Friday through Sunday. And I have two of the casters from that event uh, standing virtually alongside me, sitting in different parts of the world, different time zones, but they're here with us today to talk through alchemy, historic, everything we have in store. We are going to talk about decks. We're going to talk about the metagame. We're going to hang out for an hour and do one of my favorite things, which is just talk about magic. So uh, before we do that, uh, in case you aren't aware, let's put up some of the graphics talking a little bit about this weekend. So the Neon Dynasty Championship, uh, again, taking place Friday. That's tomorrow through Sunday, starting at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. UTC, 2 a.m. JST, if you're up for staying up that late or getting up that early. Uh, we are going to be playing Alchemy and Historic Constructed, which we are going to be talking about quite a bit today. It'll be right here on this. If you're able to get to this Twitch channel, you can get to the championship. Twitch.tv slash magic. We'll be using the hashtag, hashtag NeoChamps all weekend. And your broadcast team for the weekend, you just met two-sevenths of the team. Uh, we'll have Maria and Corey, and we've got Alias V and Riley and Cedric and Marshall and Moni all on the stream Friday through Sunday. But we're going to pick the brains of Cedric and Moni today, right now, after we do the news, though. That, that sounded like the transition <laughs> to talking to you guys. It wasn't it. Uh, almost there. Almost there. Uh, a little bit of news for this week. Earlier this week, we announced some bans and restrictions. Uh, actually, no restrictions. Uh, just bans. In Pioneer and Modern, Luris finally got the axe in Pioneer and Modern. And then Pauper, we banned Galvanic Relay and Disciple of the Vault and unbanned Expedition Map in Pauper. For explanations on all of those changes, head to dailymtg.com. And then also announced this week, just last night, Command Zone Live. We're going to be doing a few of these coming up uh, with two of your favorites, Jimmy and Josh, who are going to be doing all the talking for Command Zone Live. Head to magic.gg for more information. Uh, and then my final bit of news, usually I do this at the end of the show where I talk about upcoming shows, but it's on topic. So uh, we've got three fantastic shows that you're going to want to tune into the next three weeks. Definitely tune into this one because you're already here. But next week, we are finally going to have that MTG Arena economy talk that I've been promising for so long. That's going to happen. Uh, the week after that, we are going to have our Commander Legends Baldur's Gate pre-beat. So we're going to learn a little bit more about that set. And then the week after that, we're going to have some news about uh, our Premier Play systems. So uh, William Jensen's going to join us for that show. A lot of exciting stuff coming up, but a lot of exciting stuff on this show as well. So we are going to start off talking about Alchemy. And we just released the metagame for both Alchemy and Historic. So we're going to start with Alchemy. So uh, Cedric, let's start with you. What are your, looking at this metagame spread, what are your initial impressions and initial thoughts? Uh, well, obviously, myself and Monty have had to dive into a lot of this information to prepare for this weekend's event. Uh, and coming into things, Naya Runes was certainly the deck to beat, uh, but it appears that 53 players believe they have found the right answer to do so 
and mono white aggro, given that's the most played deck in the alchemy portion of the set championship that's coming up starting tomorrow. Uh, the Orzhov Venture deck, the Marty Midrange deck, Azorius Control, and Rakdos Sacrifice, pretty heavy numbers with those decks as well, given the size of the tournament. I know we'll get into some of those decks as well, but uh, if you're taking just kind of the uh, the layers back on alchemy, Naya Runes is super good, so players had to be prepared to beat that deck, and uh, we're going to see if the non-Naya Runes decks actually get the job done. Well, Monty, let's start with you and talk about that Naya Rune set, because that certainly had all of the hype coming into the event, and it looks like it's it's definitely well represented, but maybe not the top deck like some people were saying. Yeah, I think especially with the results leading into the weekend, a lot of people were expecting Naya Runes to be the most played deck. And it, some recent set championships we've seen in these smaller formats like Standard or Alchemy, a single deck can really dominate uh, the percentage of the metagame up to 40%. So seeing it at a healthy 18% is certainly a nice change here. And the deck is extremely powerful. There's a reason why everybody respected it in their testing. Just being able to have this fast, proactive game plan and combining sort of the cost reduction effects of Jukai Naturalist with Runeforge Champion and then having those explosive turns, getting those free runes, as well as Showdown of the Skulls triggers, Generous Visitor triggers, means that you just get massive creatures, typically with haste and or trample, and it can just be a lot to deal with for some decks. Yeah, and let's put the uh, the Naya Runes graphic up on the screen. So, Amani, for anyone who's not familiar, uh, what's the core engine of this deck? It's definitely Jukai Naturalist plus Room 4 Champion as your reduction engine. Naturalist makes all your enchantment spells cost less. Room 4 Champion has that ability where you can pay a single colorless mana rather than pay the mana cost for your rune spells. So when both of them are on the battlefield, all your runes are essentially free. Now, runes do draw a card when they enter the battlefield, so they are already cantrips, but how you really compound that advantage is through cards like Generous Visitor, cards like Kami of Transients, and Showdown of the Skulls. They are really your uh, growth engine, as they reward you for casting multiple enchantments in a turn, multiple spells in a turn, and continue growing your creatures. And when your runes are giving utility abilities like Lifelink, like Trample, like Haste, it means that a lot of damage can come out of nowhere, and for some decks, they just can't deal with that game plan. Well, and, and Cedric... How uh, it seems like the mono white deck is one of the decks that probably shouldn't be able to interact with that kind of engine, but a lot of people brought it. So a lot of people must think that they can interact with that kind of engine. Uh, also in Alchemy, it's a deck that's been knocked down a little bit by some of the changes to the cards. So tell us a little bit about the mono white deck in Alchemy. Yeah, the rebalancing of cards notwithstanding, this deck does a nice job of preying on this rune strategy with a card like Thalia Guardian of Thraben, making the runes more expensive if they don't have their cost reducers on the battlefield. But one card that's certainly missing from this graphic that we can't overlook is Archon of Emyria, uh, which mm -hmm. makes lands under the battlefield tapped, and we can't also forget the fact that it's going to make it so that you can only play one spell per turn. So that's going to slow down the runes deck that wants to go kind of crazy on specific turns when these runes are going to be free and they can go crazy with that. They can go crazy on a showdown to the Skull's turn. And Archon of Maria does a really nice job of saying, actually, you're not going to get the opportunity to do that and slows them down greatly. We also can't forget the inclusion of a card like Skyclave Apparition, 
uh, or Brutal Cathar, cards that answer creatures pretty cleanly, which, of mm -hmm. course, this Runes deck wins via the attack step. So you toss all that stuff in there along with a couple of one-drops and two-drops to get the party started, and you've got a deck that appears to have a really good matchup against Runes, and, of course, there's the Mirror that's going to be involved. How well it does against everything else is yet to be seen, but when you walk into a tournament knowing that there is a deck with a target on, it, a target on its head like Runes, people build a deck to beat the deck, and it looks mm -hmm. like Model White does a really nice job of that. Okay. Uh, Monty, one of the surprises for me on that list was the was the venture deck. I mean, obviously, a lot of cards with venture with the venture keyword on them were improved recently, and it looks like a number of people thought they were improved enough to actually catapult it towards the top of the metagame. Tell us a bit about this black white deck. Yeah, I, I was actually uh, part of the testing process for the team that brought this Orzhov Venture deck, and it, it started through actually a green-white Venture list that then slowly evolved over time as people it, it tried to figure out what is the weakness of the runes deck. And one of the big things was, well, the word Death Touch. So black creatures slowly started entering the fold. We see Triumphant Adventurer there rebalanced to a 2-1, certainly relevant precipitous drop. It, you know, this is a card that is a perfect example of the rebalancing, making it playable, reducing the cost from three mana to two. And slowly this deck started to take form as, well, we have some discard, we have Archon of Amiria, once again, not pictured, but mm -hmm. also a card like City Stalker Connoisseur, which is one of the powerhouses in the alchemy format, being able to both be a death touch creature and also sort of almost targeted discard against the runes deck, making sure to get that showdown of the skulls out of their hand. Mm -hmm. All of these effects combined just made it so you could almost lock the runes deck out of being able to play the game from any axis. Hmm. Yeah, I've played against the deck a few times on the ladder, and it also seems like the deck gets to keep doing those sorts of disruptive things while also every turn venturing into the dungeon and like maintaining a little bit of an advantage that way. Yeah, it's having the ability to venture further into dungeons on attack for two of your creatures with mm -hmm. Nidar and the Triumphant Adventurer means that you're not really going out of your way to venture anymore. We do see the Adventurer has first strike on your turn as well, so the cost of attacking doesn't really exist because your opponent can't trade with it particularly well, especially mm -hmm. with that second point of power. Now it means that if your opponent blocks with two creatures, they'll both get first strike death touchdown, whereas before, as a 1-1, one -one, you could just throw two creatures in front of it. So suddenly it's a very mighty threat, and it means that you're consistently venturing deeper, completing those dungeons, suddenly precipitous drop is minus five, minus five, and it all just snowballs from there. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, speaking of snowballing, uh... The, the blue-white deck is one of the snowballier decks in the format. It gets it takes a little bit to get going, but once you've got key to the archives and a Teferi in play, the deck can do a lot of things. So Cedric, tell us a little bit about this blue-white control deck. Well, you mentioned two of the key cards there in key to the archive and Teferi. We can't forget about Discovery of the Formula as well. That six-mana instant speed spell is kind of the glue that ties the room together once you get into the mid-to-late game. Uh, the goal, of course, is to be able to get to that stage of the game, which means hopefully you're not dying too quick. So there's going to be plenty of removal that's kind of seasoned into these Azoria-based strategies. There's a lot of different routes you can go in that regard, but any of these Azoria-based strategies, excuse me, you're going to find plenty of removal. But these key cards are the way to kind of take over and overpower opponents if you get the opportunity to resolve them on pretty clean battlefields. 
the goal here for Model White and for Runes is to have that not be the case, is to put a lot of pressure and exert a lot of pressure onto Nazori's control deck and hope that their answers don't really line up appropriately. Um, and we're going to find out if this Azorius deck, you know, the builds of this deck can actually stand up against these two white-based aggressive decks because given how popular they both are, Azorius better have a good matchup or those Azorius players are going to have a really bad week. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, one of the key cards there that wasn't on there, but for that particular matchup is Purge, the, or Celestial Purge, the uh, three-mana sweeper that hits things that are three-mana or less. Uh, enchantments or creatures which covers yeah, divi divine purge divine Super purge good. thank you yeah, yeah. Uh, which covers i think pretty close to everything in both the runes deck and the mono white deck so if you're bringing that you're probably aiming for those two decks um then we also have a couple you know the, there's a bunch of decks in the metagame but i did notice that the the mardu midrange the rakdos sacrifice were kind of a little different than everything else. So, Monty, why don't you take us, let's start with the Mardu Midrange deck. What that? What's that deck trying to accomplish? Yeah, the Mardu Midrange deck is actually very similar to the Orzov Ventralist. Different teams sort of it arrive to the same logical conclusions as you typically get when you have some of the best players in the world spending a solid two to three weeks trying to solve a format. City Soccer Connoisseur, Archon of Amiria, uh, Triumphant Adventure, these cards are good against runes. However, one conclusion that they came to differently is we can afford to stretch our mana a bit. We're making treasures from the dungeon. We have pathways. We have these dual lands. And Fable of the Mirror Breaker is actually one of the most powerful cards that was introduced to the format from Neon Dynasty. So making the inclusion of the Fable of the Mirror Breaker, not only as a saga where immediately on the first chapter, you're creating a creature that can help uh, snowball the game by creating treasure tokens upon attacking. But you also get card filtering and the backside is extremely powerful, duplicate effects like that City Soccer Connoisseur, suddenly you just have a card that makes perfect sense in this deck and really ups the power level. So similar idea, but perhaps going a bit greedier. And when we're in a world of not just runes, but decks that are designed to beat runes, suddenly the conversation turns to, who does it best against everyone else? Because a lot of people might be spending all of their time testing against runes trying to break it, but if you don't find the other decks that other people may be bringing, you have no idea how your deck actually looks in those matchups. Okay. And we've got another, I mean, there are actually a couple other black-red decks in the format, but one of the more interesting ones is the Rakdos Sacrifice deck, which uses Oni Cult Anvil, things like Sanguine Brushstroke, creatures that make blood tokens. Uh, Mani, what's going on here? You know, this really reminds me of some of the decks of old, the aristocrats. We've even seen it in the Jund and Golgari food decks in Historic. It, it, it's really about slowly pinging your opponent down through these different triggers. Oni Cult Anvil, huge inclusion to the deck from Neon Dynasty, giving you another way to create tokens, sacrifice, get those ping triggers. And Sanguine Brushstroke, of course, a staple of this deck, actually went through a rebalancing pretty recently. However, losing uh, the main ability of gaining life not that relevant ultimately yes it's a little worse against 
the aggressive decks, but not the end of the world as creating a blood token, giving you a blood artist, and still having that ability to drain your opponent's life total mm -hmm. really, really good in this deck. Yeah, as, as sure. a few people noticed, the... Uh... The Sanguine Brushstroke that was on the screen there still had the life gain on it, so that was the old version. Now when you sacrifice a blood token, your opponent loses a life, you don't gain any life, uh, but still a very powerful card. Um, out of the rest of the deck, Cedric, are there any that catch your eye that you think might be positioned well? Um, for me, it's kind of hard to say, right? You know, there's the Jeskai Nada deck, there's Crisis Midrange, and then the other column is pretty darn large, by the way. And most of the time, I wouldn't say that we see the other percentage be 21.8% of the field, but that kind of goes to show you that Alchemy is a format that is very untapped as far as potential is concerned and really just kind of solidifying what is or is not the best deck. Again, coming into this event, Naya Runes was the deck to beat. Looks like a whole lot of players think that Model White is actually the deck to beat. So the thing that is the most interesting to me, Blake, is less so the other decks um, that are kind of running around here, but what's the true story of this tournament? Have people actually gotten Naya Runes pegged as a deck that can be beat, or is Naya Runes far better than anyone actually realizes? That's mm -hmm. the thing that's going to be really telling to me this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. I do want to, you pointed out the Hinata deck, which plays Magma Opus, and there has been something going around today. Um, we posted something in the tournament Discord about a bug associated with that card. Our initial statement on what that bug was was incorrect. There was a little bit of an internal communication on our side. The Magma Opus bug is not nearly as bad as it seemed at first. It only fails to deal damage if something is, this is complicated, but if something else on the stack above it loses its target. So it has nothing to do with what Magma Opus is targeting. Uh, it has to do with if something else on the stack above it loses its target. So the bug's not nearly as bad and not nearly as game-breaking, thankfully, for Magma Opus players. So I'm excited to see what that deck can do because casting Magma Opus for two mana is an experience I would love to have on camera. Uh, it, just, it just feels so good. It does. It'll probably be. It'll probably look so good too. It, it happens. So yeah, <laughs> it yeah. was my choice for what I wanted to see most. Of this okay, weekend. there so, you, you go. Know, okay, I, I, I've got my fingers crossed. <laughs> well. I be, I bet we'll see it at some point in time. Um, all right. Next up, let's move on to talking about historic. So. Uh, Historic is a little bit more explored than Alchemy is, but we've still got a few surprises, I think, in this list. So let's take a look at the Historic metagame. There it is. Uh, to the surprise of no one, Is It Phoenix is still at the top of that standing, so 24.5%. But then after that, there are a lot of decks just kind of in the same range. So Cedric, when you're looking at this, what stands out to you about the metagame? Um, the notes I take away from this are I'm a little surprised at how little Algari food there is given its dominance at the Innistra Championship um, by that incredibly powerful team uh, in Japan, uh, mm -hmm. most notably by Yuki Ishikawa, who was able to win the tournament. So I think that's the first thing that stands out to me. The second thing is, uh, you know, is it, uh, is it Phoenix? Not Control. Is it Phoenix? Um, look, this deck is a, it's an easy go-to insofar as You've got a very powerful engine that everybody knows works, right? You've got you've got Arclight Phoenix, Consider, Opt, Cantrips, Faithless Looting, all that stuff. We know that this engine is good. We know that it's powerful. We know it's going to be here for a little while. 
Uh, it's the most played deck. That, as you mentioned, doesn't really come as much of a surprise, but I think a lot of people also know that coming in. So if the Innistrad set championship that we watched in December is any indication, players that are not playing is it Phoenix feel comfortable as though they can beat this deck. So I'm going to be most curious to see how this incredibly obvious yet powerful selection <laughs> is for people. Yeah, Monty, what stands out to you? Uh, I think one of the big surprises from the metagame breakdown is how little Golgari food there is. And I, I, I personally am not over it. I expected it to be maybe around 13% of the metagame. Uh, in a format like Historic that is so wide open and there's so many options, you don't really get those huge spikes in a single deck. But even so, we saw Golgari food be extremely dominant at the last set championship. And... You know, I, I'm a little shocked to see the number be this low, given how powerful the deck is. Well, let's let's pause on Golgari Food for a little bit. I'm going to skip around, Producer Sean. So let's talk about Golgari Food, especially since at the top of the show, we talked about banning Lurith in both Pioneer and Modern, but it's still legal and historic. So, uh, Mani, talk a little bit about how this deck works and how important Lurith is to it. Yeah, one of the last remaining competitive bastions <laughs> for the cat nightmare. Uh, this deck is extremely cool. It's very grindy. Uh, we don't see it on screen, but it's really utilizing the Witch's Oven, Cauldron Familiar, and Trail of mm -hmm. combination that has been a mainstay. It was a mainstay in Standard during this time, now a mainstay in Historic. And it's all about incremental triggers. You're getting... A sacrifice here you get a drain you get to pay one get a permanent from trail of crumbs now with ravenous squirrel one of the big additions to the deck suddenly you're growing your squirrel the meat hook massacre your opponent loses the life but all of these are compounding turn after turn with each trigger you are furthering the hole that your opponent is sort of in and that's how the deck gets you because it's a lot of repetition and it's able to do it consistently over and over and over again. Luris in the companion zone just furthers that as everything in the deck costs two or less. So suddenly you're just repeating it and starting it all over again. And it's that type of deck that can be really polarizing for a lot of people. All right, let's jump back up to the top of the metagame because we, we started to talk about it. But Cedric, for, for the people at home who haven't seen Phoenix before, um, which you might be new, welcome. Uh, yeah. Phoenix, is, Phoenix has been around for a while. We even saw it in Standard for a bit, but it's picked up a lot of tools in Historic. So tell us about the core engine of the Phoenix deck. Well, the core engine is pretty simple, right? It's Faithless Looting and Arclight Phoenix and then other cheap cantrips and spells. Faithless Looting is the most notable card here because of the draw two, discard two, and the same color as Arclight Phoenix. So that makes a lot of sense, right? There's also the new-ish new cantrip in Consider, which allows you to kind of control the top of your deck or put a card in the graveyard. Again, ideally, that'll be Arclight Phoenix. Uh, but you toss in cheap cantrips, so you have a lot of manipulation, so you have a lot of agency over what you're going to draw over the course of the game. That's very appealing for players at this skill level. They want to feel like they have agency over their decisions and agency over their deck building, which they very much do when you play a deck like this. That's why when you take a look at it, is it Phoenix Eclis, you're going to see a lot of two-ofs and one-ofs. Because you have so much card manipulation, you're going to be able to find those cards. So that means that every single card that you play, it's kind of magnified on what that one of and two of is going to be because the chances are you're going to see it over the course of the games that you play, mm -hmm. right? So some people are playing Stormwing Entities. Some people are playing Sprite Dragon. Some people are playing a one-of copy of Flame Bless Bolt and Finale of Promise and, 
you can build this deck a lot of different ways, which is also something players of this caliber really like to do, right? If you think about a mono-white aggro deck, you know, 32 of your cards are already kind of locked in, and then you get to change, like, seven or eight of them. You play your lands. Maybe you can play, like, one unique non-basic, and your deck does the same thing every game. And, okay, I hope that same thing is good every time. This one, <laughs> you can kind of do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You got, like, this little finale thing you can do. You can do this kind of early Stormwing Entity thing. You can play a Sprite Dragon game. You still have your Art Light Phoenix draws as well. So that's what's appealing about the strategy. It's just so much card draw, so much agency over what's going on. The big question is, is just, is your general base of, hey, I'm going to make the Mark Light Phoenixes pretty quick in the, over the course of the games we play. Is that good? And we saw at the, we saw at the Innistrad Championship in December, that was not good. It was not good mm -hmm. against Golgari Food, and, the, and those Japanese players cleaned up on people that were trying to do that, uh, which is why Mani and myself are a little surprised that there's so little Golgari Food at this tournament. Yeah. Well, I think one of the cards that might bridge the gap between looking at those two decks is in our next deck. The uh, blue-white control deck has picked up March of Otherworldly Light, which gives the deck a tool it has not had lately. So, Monty, how much of a game-changer is March of Otherworldly Light? It, it, it's pretty huge. It's the type of card that really addresses some of the problems that control-style decks have faced in faster formats in the past. Because, one, it's flexible. Two, it's an exile effect, so it's permanent. And three, it has a cost reduction ability built in. So suddenly Azorius Control can really keep pace. In the past, a card like March of Otherworldly Light wouldn't really be useful against a deck like Is It Phoenix, for example. And Control has suffered against a deck like Phoenix in the past because casting March for five isn't really feasible to try to stay in the game. But suddenly, if you're only paying three mana for your March and exiling a card, yeah, it's costly, but it at least lets you play the game. And obviously against a deck like Golgari Food, where Zori's control was already doing pretty well, March is just another incredible removal spell. All of the deck costs one and two. It's all about recursion. You exile things permanently, and it's just a fantastic effect. Yeah, I mean, the, the blue-white control decks, one of the play patterns was often use Archmage's Charm to steal an oven, which the Azorius control deck can't do much with, but the idea was to keep it out of the hands of the food player. Now March of Otherworldly Light does that, and Archmage's Charm can be freed up to do other things. Yeah, it's just more options for this deck. Charm already being such a flexible card is huge. Being a counter spell, being a draw spell, and of course that steal mode, they're all incredibly good in various matchups, which is why Archmage's Charm's inclusion in Historic was really a huge step up for the Azorius Control archetype and almost breathed new life into it when it was released late last year. So I, I think we're seeing this deck continue to get more tools and not surprised to see it show up in the numbers that it did at this tournament considering it had a food matchup i wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the players that brought azorius control like me and cedric also expected that food number to be significantly higher mm -hmm. um okay so let's let's stick with the blue white decks this next one has a little bit of a different flavor though you're still going to see teferi there but it's got a different sort of core engine and and end game in that it's going to try to get a ton of mana through lotus field and cards like strict proctor so uh, cedric what's going on with this deck 
So the first two cards that you see are the two cards that matter there in Lotus Field and Strict Proctor because they work side by side with each other, right? You you play your Strict Proctor on turn two, you play Lotus Field. Now you know. Now you're really you're really cooking here. I guess you can do it on turn three too if you'd like. But uh, this means that you're going to have a huge mana advantage, and Lotus Field works beautifully with Teferi's Plus of drawing a card then on tapping some lands. This mana advantage matters in a couple of different spots. One. Oftentimes, if you've ever played a control mirror, if you've watched a control mirror uh, on coverage, one of the first things I always mention is, you know, the first player to kind of start missing their land drops is going to have a huge problem because they can't play multiple spells in a turn while the other person can, right? Lotus Field, you know, by doing this kind of little cheat on Lotus Field means you're going to have that mana advantage if everything goes according to plan. But when you're also playing against maybe more aggressive laden strategies, being able to kind of skip from two to five mana allows you to play multiple spells in a turn uh, and really start to unload, you know, Planeswalker plus big thing, uh, you know, Sweeper plus leave a counterspell up, that sort of thing, right? And that's what you're kind of looking for. Now, the tough part about this, Blake, is you have to play Strict Proctor. Um, yeah. Now, obviously, <laughs> obviously some people believe that is worth it. And there's a reason that I'm casting this tournament and not playing it is because, you know, a player like Yvonne Flock, who is a Pro Tour champion and has a Hall of Fame resume. Look, he believes that this is the way to go, and who am I to argue? I'm very interested to see if taking a more traditional approach, like what we just went over previously, is the right way to go, or is it take a more risky approach, like playing Strict Proctor <laughs> alongside Lotus Field, which you don't have to do if this is the way to go. Yeah. I don't know which one's right or wrong. I'm just curious to find out. Well, you know, I've, I've played this deck a lot, and the Strict Proctor build seemed to me to be better when there was a ton of green-white Heliod in the field. Because that deck, sure. had, it had a million triggers, it tried to do infinite number of triggers in a turn, and you couldn't do that with a Strict Proctor in the field. There's some splash damage on Golgari Food, you don't get all of your triggers for, like, the cat entering the battlefield. Um, some small things like that, but... Um, it, it basically is blank cardboard against Phoenix, for example. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that metagame call uh, pays off or if uh, the straight blue-white version is better. Um, yep. So now that we've seen kind of what the, what the entire field looks like, Monty, looking at the metagame as a whole, what do you like? Uh, I feel like the Phoenix players are really happy with their deck choice. Mm -hmm. I feel like the blue-white players maybe not as happy with their deck choice. And honestly, if I'm a Golgari food player, I'm still pretty ecstatic. There's 25% of the field is Phoenix, and I am ready to just feast on them. All right. Cedric? Yeah, if I'm playing Golgari Food this weekend, I'm pretty pumped. Uh, I'm uh, alongside Mani in that one. I mean, given the dominance that we saw at the Innistrad Championship a couple of months ago, uh, and to see these numbers be so low and see decks that you can really prey on, um, you know, assuming that you've put the time in, because don't get it twisted, Golgari Food is extremely difficult to play at its upper echelon ceiling. But if you feel you're comfortable there, I think those players are going to have a really, really, really good tournament, uh, for sure. All right. So, Cedric, sticking with you for a sec, outside the, the Phoenix, the Azorius, the Golgari food deck, what which of these decks appeal to you? Well, you know, Rathos Arcanist has a pedigree of being a very powerful strategy. The combination of Dreadhorde Arcanist, Thoughtseize, you know, Discard, Kroxa, all that other stuff. Again, it's, it has a pedigree, and I'm curious if it can revive anything here within this metagame. Uh, 13 players playing it, only 5.5. 
0.7% of the metagame, which seems like a low number, but when you compare it to some of the other things around it, it's a reasonable number. Um, aura strategies don't really do much for me. Um, they still, even though they've picked up light poles, they still just kind of feel the same, which is if you're able to answer the two mana threat, be it Core Spirit Dancer, Saram, or in this instance, Light Paws, you're going to be okay. And when Is It Phoenix is the top deck, they're going to have the answer to a two drop <laughs> creature like that more often than not, given how much manipulation they have. And you know they're going to be playing uh, some number of spot removal spells. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know how Aura's, feel, how Aura's players excuse me, are going to feel about their Is It Phoenix matchup or seeing that be number one. Uh, with so much of it as a percentage of the metagame, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe Orzhovoras and the other versions of that deck are better positioned than I think. All right, Monty, anything else stand out to you? Uh, I'm actually going to sort of double down on what Cedric said with the Rakdos Arcanist. Mm. Arcanist had a pretty great win rate at the last set championship. Uh, its big failing was to Golgari food. That is where the deck really struggled. And, you know, it, we haven't actually seen it yet, though I expect we will throughout the weekend. Uh, Rakdos Arcanist got a great new card against food in Neon Dynasty in Hidetsu Who Consumes All. Mm. So, you know, that's an aura that that's a saga we're not really talking about right now. But if we see the Rakdos against Golgari food matchup throughout the weekend, I'm pretty certain we're going to be seeing the card and talking about it then and that could be a game changer so Rakdos Arcanist I wouldn't count it out quite yet all right well we are going to move into players to watch before we do that chat just letting you know we are going to have a Q&A session with Cedric and Monty at the end of this broadcast after we talk about players to watch so if you've got questions for either of them about this weekend's event uh, feel free to throw them in chat. It'll be easier for me to see them if you tag at magic or uh, my username. Either way, um, we'll ask them a bunch of questions, but put them in chat. So let's start out with uh, Mani on your players to watch. I think we got three from each of you. Uh, tell us a little bit about these players and why you expect them to have a big weekend. Well, the players I'm looking at are players that already played in the last set championship. They had pretty good results. They are playing in this set championship, and some of them are already qualified for the next set championship. So taking a look at my list, the first person that really came to mind was Arya Karmchandani. She has just been absolutely dominating the sort of secondary events, the qualifier events. I believe this is going to be either her fourth or fifth set championship in a row through qualifications and already locked up a qualification for the next event. So I'm really excited to see the decks that she brought. I think they are great metagame calls and overall it's just a pleasure to watch her play. So I'm pretty excited. The next person, Simon Nielsen. Uh, Simon is a name that a lot of us know from watching him play in the past and this year he's sort of made a pretty exciting declaration which is i'm going to play in the world championship and he looked at the breakdown of this year's system he's looked at the path to qualification for the non-leaks players and you know he started off his season pretty well he's currently fourth in the standings for the non-league players that can qualify for worlds he got 
30 match points at the last championship. He's playing this championship. And as we mentioned before, he's won a qualifier for the next championship. So playing all three, starting with a lot of points, and he is on his path to the world championship. So really excited to see if Simon can sort of deliver on his decree of making it there. And finally, Tristan Wadlerou, uh, another player that is currently tied for first in the non-league world championship standings, 33 match points at the last set, last set championship. I don't believe he's currently qualified for Streets of New Capena, but still going into this event, I like his deck choices. He tested with a great team and considering the lead that he has already on the field, I expect to see great things from him. Great. Cedric, how about you? All right. Three selections for me. First up will be one Dom Harvey, someone who I have done coverage with uh, and was actually in charge of at Star City Games. Um, when he decided to start playing in the SCD Tour uh, way back when, pre-pandemic, um, he was, if we had a version of Rookie of the Year, he definitely would have won it. He won either three or four opens and qualified for the players championship and just decided, yeah, I'm really good at this. So I'm just going to keep coming to every event. And um, yeah, I mean, he was just a crusher. And I got to watch a lot of his feature matches and talk with him and work with him. And it's just this dude, I don't really know where he came from, but he's really good at this. And he also is just like a magic historian. So he knew like a lot about my career and like Jerry Thompson's career, and all these other people that he used to watch. And I'm just like, geez, I don't, how have I never heard of you? So uh, he's really freaking good. I, you know, I don't know if this will be the tournament he breaks out or he'll qualify. I think he's already qualified for the next one too. Um, so it, it's it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So that's mm-hmm. one. Uh, number two, Tommy Ashton, uh, who's a really good friend of mine and whose Magic Online count is older than most people who uh, play Magic nowadays. I, I know. When um, you submitted that, I was like, Tommy Ashton, there's a name I haven't heard in a while. Yeah, uh, Standerson on Magic Online. He's been doing this forever. He just mm-hmm. played in the Magic Online Championship Series. I think that was last weekend. Actually, no, two, excuse me, two weekends ago. Time is whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he didn't have a great tournament there because, unfortunately for him, uh, someone who plays primarily online Magic, for the first time, quite literally, in all of the Magic tournaments that he's played that are huge on that platform, his third pick in the Vintage Cube that he was doing, his internet disconnected. And he missed the third pick, and the fourth pick, and the fifth pick, and the sixth pick. And he's like, I've been playing Magic forever, and my internet has never gone out on me in a crucial moment. So fingers crossed that doesn't happen this weekend, uh, because he's put a lot of time in, and he feels pretty ready for this event. And last but not least is an absolute juggernaut right now uh, in Nathan Stoyer. Uh, Monty, sorry, buddy, I got him before you did, so sorry about that whammy. Um, so Nathan is young and just really, really, really good at Magic. Um, he has won two tournaments in the past two weekends. He won the Magic Online Championship Series, uh, the Champion Showcase, excuse me. Um, 6-0, didn't lose a match, so he didn't need to play finals. And it was his third one of those that he qualified for in a row, and only eight players qualified for that. So as Luis Scott Vargas put it, it's harder to qualify for that than like a Pro Tour or a Pro Tour equivalent. And he's qualified for three in a row and then just won one. Uh, and then last weekend in Chicago, him alongside Oliver Tomiko and Isaac Bullwinkle, that's a real name, by the way, um, they won the team tournament in Chicago. So Nathan is on a back-to-back year. And if you know anything about competitive magic, you have seen in the past where someone goes like, hey, I won an event, I won another event, and now there's a Pro Tour equivalent event. They generally do well in the next event like that. So, yeah, I wouldn't want to play against Nathan if I was anybody in this event, personally, because he is playing a lot of magic and he is winning a lot of magic. 
All right. Well, we will definitely tally these up after the weekend's over and see if either of you have any bragging rights here for cold shots. Uh, all right. That is everything we had on our agenda, but we wanted to leave some time for you, the fans, to ask some questions in chat. Uh, so go ahead and put your questions for Cedric and Monty in chat. Uh, I'm going to answer a couple of questions that were directed at me. Uh, to start off, uh, to reiterate, we've got a couple exciting shows to come coming up. So next week, seven days from now, right here on Twitch.tv slash magic, we will have that arena economy chat that we have been promising for so long. And by we, I mean me. Uh, but we are actually having it next week, and we'll talk about a bunch of stuff there. Uh, the week after, we are going to do the Commander Legends pre-beat. So for those of you asking if there are any preview cards this week, there are not, but we will have some on the 24th. And then coming up on the 31st, if you're watching this show, you're probably interested in our Premier Play system. And we are going to be talking about that on March 31st with new Director of Play Programs, William Jensen, which is a name you might actually recognize as well. He's... He's been around. He's done a few things. He's been okay. He's been one or two. Okay. I've one heard the name before. Yeah. Uh, all right. First question for you two. I think we talked a little bit about it, but um, question from chat. How will Divine Purge impact the weekend? So both formats have access to this card. Uh, let's start with Mani. How will Divine Purge impact the weekend? Not as much as we may expect it to. Uh, I think one of the things that we have found from a lot of the sort of control decks that might be interested in bringing the card is they're really relying on their own creatures and artifacts that cost three or less. So they can't really take the hit in exiling their own things. So Divine Purge, kind of uh, a card that is questionable in some of the control builds. We do see it in the Lotus Field build, for example, that are not exiling their own things, but a lot of other decks have opted to bring cards like Portable Hole, and, and then once you have that, you can't really mm -hmm. play a card like Divine Purge, and I think people found enough other answers to uh, the runes deck to not really need to rely on Divine Purge too much. Okay. Cedric? I think Divine Purge is a really powerful card, but we're also talking about the best players in the world, and so when Divine Purge is a known entity coming into the event, People are going to build their decks around it as best they can, but also those who are looking to try to cast Divine Purge are going to know that as well. So there's very much of a there's very much a staring contest here of, you know I'm going to play Divine Purge, I need to prepare myself accordingly, and also I know you're going to play Divine Purge, so I prepared myself accordingly. Um, so, you know, it's not as clean as, you know, your general sweepers like Wrath of God or Day of Judgment would be. So people can prepare, and that makes you play this kind of, again, staring contest guessing game about, how well people are prepared around this card, how well should I prepare for people who prepared around this card by not playing very many copies of this card at all, mm -hmm. uh, which means, that just means, in my estimation, that the card will not be that popular or overperform like it did when it first arrived, when there was a lot of conversation on social media about Divine Purge is busted. It's a mm -hmm. good card, but people are, I think, ready for it now than they were a month ago. Yep. Um, all right. Cedric, let's stay with you. This is a question for both of you, though. Are there any outlier decks that Cedric or Mani are curious to see perform in either format? Um, the thing that stands out to me across the two formats is whatever the heck is going on with this Lotus Veil deck, because you just or Lotus Field deck, you just have any reason to do that. Um, but it's it's a very to me it's a very high ceiling 
risk that you're taking with uh, with the Proctor and with Lotus Field. Because if you're right, you, your deck might just be completely nuts. And then people are just like, why didn't we do this? Why didn't we have this? We're so mm -hmm. far behind, right? Where it can look great. Or it could just be a thing that happened over the course of the weekend that we forget it a month from now, right? Mm -hmm. Or it could be the defining element of the weekend and the thing that we are talking about for years to come about how the players found this combination of cards in this particular tournament. So to me, it's a high ceiling. It's also a low floor. It could it could be bad. Yeah. It could be bad. <laughs> That's possible, right? It could just not be very good. Yeah, and I think, you know, the secret sauce, too, you're not just playing Strict Proctor. You're playing things like Stifle. You're playing things like the uh, the six-mana card that can cost two mana. And Discontinuity. Discontinuity. Yeah. Finding, because those cards are all very situationally powerful, but also situationally just dead. And so I think finding the right combination of those in the metagame is going to be pretty important. It's also pretty difficult to do. Yeah, um, so I'm very, I'm very curious about that. Yeah. Uh, Monty, how about you? Uh, there is a Grixis midrange deck in the Alchemy metagame. Mm. Uh, I didn't really have my eyes on this sort of archetype going into the weekend. But this deck looks really interesting to me. It's playing City Soccer Connoisseur. It's playing Fable of the Mirror Breaker. Uh, it's also playing uh, the new Planeswalker Kato. So just a, a lot of powerful things being done by this deck. There's also some questionable things. I'm, I'm not I'm not going to just say that this deck looks incredible. There, there's some things I'm not too sure about. But in theory, I like a lot of what the what this deck is doing i mm -hmm. really want to see it in execution because i i sort of i'm hoping it proves to be viable i i can't say who brought it uh or why i'm overly excited to see it <laughs> but you, you'll find out tomorrow mm -hmm. uh but needless to say there are reasons that i am excited about this specific grixis midrange deck all right uh, let's see. So I, I'm going to read the question, but then I'm going to reframe it a little bit and you'll see why. So the question was, what power level adjustments would you recommend to pull Blue Red Phoenix down and diversify the meta? Cedric and Monty aren't, um, they aren't the ones who would make those kind of decisions. But, but Cedric, why don't you talk a little bit about, because Phoenix does powerful things, but it's not like the most powerful thing. You talked about its consistency. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest selling point of the deck, right? Is you have Faithless Suiting, you have Opt, you have Consider. Um, you know, you have ways to manipulate your draw step to ensure that basically you're doing the same thing every game. And then the assumption or the hope is that that thing that you are doing is very good um, or is useful in the metagame. Like, like I said um, earlier and over the course of this broadcast, the deck, I don't want to say it performed poorly because it did make the finals of the Innistrad Championship, but, you know, at the end of the day, the story of the Innistrad Championship is the team from Japan and Golgari Food really laying waste to that tournament because they mm -hmm. just won the tournament, right? So, uh, to me, is it Phoenix? I don't really think it needs very many changes, personally. You know, rebalancing of cards or stuff like that. What, is Phoenix supposed to be like a 2-1 now instead of a 3-2? That seems pretty bad. Like, I don't think that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. that. So, you know, you can have those conversations all day, which is kind of a fun thing that can happen now. But to me, I don't know, it's just a consistent deck that kind of does its thing, and then sometimes its thing is good and sometimes its thing is bad. This weekend... My personal opinion, people were trying to prepare for two formats. One, alchemy, where there's a lot going on. Uh, the cards are weird and unique and rebalanced and all this stuff, right? And then you're trying to prepare for a story. So it is very easy, 
as someone who's prepared for a lot of tournaments, Monty, you've done the same thing as well, to go, you know what, let's focus a lot on alchemy, and what do you guys want to play in store? I don't know, Phoenix is fine. Phoenix mm -hmm. is fine? I'll just play Phoenix. We all know what a Phoenix decklist looks like if you played Historic at all. You know that your deck choice is only going to be so bad with Phoenix because it's incredibly consistent. And so you just say, we're going to focus a ton on peeling back the layers of alchemy. Don't forget as well, Sunday, top eight day, which is what these players strive towards, it's alchemy. Mm -hmm. So a lot of your focus is going to be there and just say, hey, you know, how, how wrong can Phoenix be? Phoenix can only be so wrong of a deck choice. And maybe you're the one or two Phoenix players that just have a really good weekend. You're the one bringing back three Phoenixes on turn three. Good for you. See you in the top eight, right? I think that's <laughs> an easy decision. So that's why I think we see a lot of it here this weekend. And less so, again, time factor. And then, Mani, I'll pass it over to you. Time factor. Remember, Golgari food, it's a really hard deck to play. There's a lot of decisions on every single turn. Um, you take the time to learn it. You're going to have a really, really, really good time at Ask Yuki Ishikawa. But if you don't know how to play it that well, your tournament is going to go really bad. So I, I can see why people gravitated towards Phoenix. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, people have limited bandwidth. That That's just true of everyone. These players yep. cannot spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week, testing for this tournament. And testing for two different constructed formats is not easy. It, mm -hmm. Again, Cedric said it, we've done it. It is not an easy task. And for these players, at some point, you have to say, this is how I'm managing my time and my resources. And not every player at this championship has the luxury of being part of a 20-person team. They don't have the ability to really allocate the resources and break it down. Well, all right, you 10 play Historic, us 10 will focus on Alchemy, and then we'll converge and really compare results and tell each other what we should play. Some people are playing alone. Some people are testing with one teammate. And that means at some point, you might just need to go with the trusted Old Faithful. And Phoenix is a deck that really benefits from diverse metagames because it is just sort of good, stable against everything. Mm -hmm. But we see when suddenly food is a large part of the metagame, it suffers a lot because it has polarizingly bad matchups. So mm -hmm. I don't think Phoenix needs to be addressed particularly. Now, uh, what makes the Phoenix versus food matchup so bad for Phoenix? Um, I mean, the answer is a lot of things, but... <laughs> but... Um, so I guess the, the, I think the easiest place to start is probably Trail of Crumbs and then just not having a clean answer to that engine being online. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the cat oven portion of things. There's the cat oven plus having a squirrel on the battlefield. And so you're like kind of growing the squirrel out of their damage-based removal range as well. Um, you know, they have enough removal to be able to manage things. The food tokens gain life, um, which means that, you know, Phoenixes are hitting in for three or six points of damage, which you can kind of keep your life level high enough while getting your entire engine online. Once your whole engine's online, you can't really do anything about it. We toss in like the meat hook massacre and like resolving that thing is like horrible news for them. And then it's just this on the battlefield has relevant text. I, I don't know, Blake, if you want to take the show until five o'clock or four, like, we can go a long time <laughs> and talk about it if you want. It's just not a good mashup. That's yeah. all. Um, and uh, look, I, I know that we have seen Phoenix players beat food decks and vice versa, but by and large, like if it's just, Hey, let's play best of seven. I'm on Phoenix, you're on food. I, I expect the food deck to win every time, assuming equal skill level of both players. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, you know, it's sort of entire game plans. Sometimes 
they just don't line up well against each other. And Phoenix sort of falls in that weird spot where it's extremely consistent at doing what it does. You have the Dragon's Rage Handler. You get the Phoenixes in the graveyard. You bring everything back. You enact this game plan game after game after game. But food is also extremely consistent at doing what it does. And unfortunately, what food does, like Cedric said, just lines up really well. You're disrupting their uh, pressure. You're gaining a little bit of life. That throws their clock off by an entire turn, sometimes two turns. That gives you the time to find an exile spell. You're going through your deck at an insane rate. And all the while, you have a squirrel that's growing, and they have to deal with it. And suddenly, there's just too many angles of attack. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. It's just, it's, just, it's just a lot. That doesn't even get into any of the sideboard stuff. Like, Solo Guy Lantern is working themselves in the equation. They have access to Luris. And, and you know the the the, uh, the is it Phoenix like doesn't have that stuff. It's just it's just a lot. It's just mm-hmm. a lot for Phoenix to overcome. Even though Phoenix is really consistent in what it does. All right. Uh, question for the both of you. I guess we'll start with Monty here. Uh, in historic, would you rather be on the side of a deck with access to strong graveyard hate like Rest in Peace, or one of the graveyard decks like Food or Phoenix? Uh, I would typically prefer to be on the side of the graveyard decks. I think something that we've seen in Historic, specifically Food and Phoenix, is they aren't just graveyard decks. They are not a deck like Dragonstorm, where it's all in on the graveyard. These decks are dynamic. These decks are good at fighting through hate. These decks are able to function from multiple axes. And that means that they're pretty good against graveyard hate. Of course, graveyard hate backed up with other things is good against them. Mm-hmm. But overall, I I really like playing a dynamic playstyle. All right. Cedric? I prefer a dynamic playstyle, and I prefer to play with cards that are going to get rebalanced or banned. That's that's what I like to do. So I, play I the mean, good cards. Just, don't play the bad cards. Yeah, I'll just I'll just pull the crowd. We, do you think there's any rebalances for rest in peace coming anytime soon? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, how much longer is Luris going to be hanging around historic? Good question. We don't know, but it wouldn't be surprised if it's not that long. So yes, I prefer proactive things, you know, stuff like that. But yeah, I don't want to be answering these proactive decks. I want to be the one playing them, and then I can put my feet up and go, well, that deck won the tournament. It may not have been me. But that deck won the tournament, so that's fine. Let's do that thing. All right, and finally, before we go, if you were playing this weekend, which two decks would you be bringing? Cedric. Okay, assuming I had I had infinite time and could, like, really get ready, um, Golgari Food in Historic, unquestionably, because uh, I think the deck is outrageous. And... <sighs> I think I'm going to say Mono White, which is a very obvious answer uh, mm-hmm. for me to say. Um, it seems like it's pretty well positioned for this particular weekend, but I think I think that would be my lean for this weekend. All right, Monty? Uh, I spent the last two weeks testing alongside a team to sort of become prepared for my commentary. Uh, I told them the same answer. I would have brought the Orzhov Venture deck that they found. I think mm-hmm. it is really well positioned for the weekend, and I would have brought Golgari Food, which none of them did. <laughs> fair enough fair enough <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Well, thank you two for joining us and giving us a peek at this weekend. Reminder that the Kamigawa Neon Dynasty Championship starts tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Monty and Cedric will be there. I'll be lurking in the background somewhere. Uh, not actually, but the uh, formats are Alchemy and Historic, and you can watch it right here on twitch.tv slash magic. And a reminder that next week, yes, I've said it a few times, but people have asked enough, we are doing the Arena Economy Talk. The week after that, we'll be doing Commander Legends Freebeat, and the week after that, we'll be talking Premiere Play with William Jensen. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you next week.